Hello everyone, this is Ron Waxman. We are covering ACC 2021 virtual and with me, Dr. Schuler Johns, uh, who is uh, from Duke University and he presented a very provocative study comparing a 325 milligram to 81 milligram aspirin. Welcome Dr. Johns. Thanks Dr. Waxman, great to be here. So tell me what was the motivation to this study? You know, for a long time, we've uh, wanted to know the right answer for which is the most appropriate dose of aspirin for our chronic coronary disease patients. So I think that um, we saw that there was a pretty large variation in the use of aspirin after MI and for long-term strategies. <clears throat> and we were, um, we were tasked with designing a pragmatic trial to be the demonstration project for the PCORNET network which PCORI uh, funded and authorized in 2014. So we thought this was a really good opportunity to, uh, to embed a clinical study and answer a common and important question. Indeed, so what is the trial design that need to uh, build up to study this question? Sure, so um, in, a, in a relatively um, simple way, and none of these trials were simple, trust me. Um, we randomized patients to 81 milligrams and 325 milligrams of daily aspirin. So patients were able to be approached via multiple different methods. So they could be approached via electronic mail, email, or electronic health record portal uh, messages, telephone calls, various different methods, and they were able to enroll and then um, provide electronic consent and self-randomize to the study dose on an internet patient portal. So this was really direct to participant um, research. And we had research patient partners who helped us along the way with every aspect from protocol design to patient facing materials, recruitment, um, and, and then dissemination as well. So this is a very um, novel concept, not for the first time, but uh, on the COVID days, it was more and more popular to do basically studies uh, virtually, Yeah, you may. Uh, and, and it's a large study, right? You needed a lot of subjects to be enrolled here. Yeah, we enrolled 15,076 participants in the study from 40 US centers, all done in the United States really no study visits at the site. So we, we, had, um, we had teams that identified these patients using listings from the electronic health record that identified the patients. And then uh, the patients were able to report, um, you know, many um, aspects about their overall health, so their quality of life, as well as uh, what happened to them in, in terms of hospitalizations and which medications they took. We also then collected information from the electronic health record using the PCORNET common data model. Um, and we had, we had insurance claims on a lot of these patients. So we had private health insurance companies that were our partners, as well as um, about a third, of Medi uh, a third of our patients had Medicare. And so we had their Medicare claims data. So there is a technical issue that I wonder how did you overcome this? Um, most patients supposed to be discharged on ticagrelor, and it's basically a warning not to use more than 81 milligram. 
So what do you do with patients post-AMI? The, the ideal therapy for them is ticagrelor, and they have this warning, uh, and they already were discharged home on ticagrelor. How do you approach those patients? Yeah, so our electronic um, computable phenotype, which we were able to program at each of the centers, actually excluded patients with uh, who are on ticagrelor. Um, so when we actually posted our protocol for public review, we got hundreds or thousands of comments about, about the protocol. And the most, uh, a very common one actually was from cardiologists that said, you know, with the North American Plato results, we don't really feel comfortable randomizing patients who are on ticagrelor. We don't feel comfortable randomizing patients who are on oral anticoagulant. So you had the, the end patients, so you had to get the consent not only from the patient, but also from the treating physician, right? Because it does require um, them to be involved or, or you skip the treating physicians? Aspirin is a over-the-counter medicine. Patients make that decision every day. Uh, I, we looked at it as uh, we're going to try to break a little bit of the paternalistic research beliefs that we all have and, and, and randomize uh, you know, participants. And, and so they, it really was a direct-to-participant um, um, you know, program. I do have to say all, almost all the centers got the buy-in from all of their clinicians to say, we really want to help answer this question. Our, uh, the Duke IRB uh, asked that we get either written or electronic uh, permission from our clinicians to approach their patients. So I got videos and emails and uh, you know, signed cocktail napkins that said, yes, you can um, you know, uh, approach and enroll my patients. And, and the study teams did a great job overall. And, and from your experience, you're a trialist, you've participated in many other studies, especially Duke is very known. Did you find any difference in the recept receptive from the patients? I mean, how did they look at that? Someone is starting to call them. Did you email them? Did you call their phone? I mean, how this was all <laughs> coming to them in a surprise, probably. We, we did it in a, a variety of different um, manners. Actually, a couple of our different study teams kind of piloted and tested the different ways to do it. It, it turns out that most um, IRBs at the centers um, um, you know, wanted a standard mail letter first. And so often that was a standard envelope that had a Duke logo on it. And a, a couple of our patient partners often joked that it looked like a bill from the hospital. Why would you ever uh, actually open that? Um, so we evolved. We actually then designed some colorful brochures that we would send to patients that said, please think about our study. And then as time went on, we had people, we actually had, um, Vanderbilt was our highest enrolling center. Vanderbilt um, figured out a way that the best way to actually get patients in, engaged and invested in this program was to send them a letter then make a telephone call and then follow up with them with another electronic mode of um, communication with a time frame in, in the couple of weeks range so that they heard about the program, they then got to speak to someone about it, and then they got another reminder. And overall, you know, um, we were able to, to kind of pilot this and get it done. <clears throat> Now, that's a fascinating. I think this story is probably as important as the actual results of the study. But before we get to the results of the study, 
I just want to go more about the details. So a research coordinator would speak at some point to the patient or all the communication was done just by emails and by text messages. So uh, about, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but about a third of patients um, joined after getting an electronic message. I think about 20% got a telephone um, call from a coordinator. And then um, about a third got um, approached in clinic. So there was traditional kind of clinic approach um, and, and Duke did that a fair bit just because that's what we have done in the past. So it was varied. Um, but, but overall, that uh, the type of approach was different um, and, and you know, um, pretty much split into thirds, electronic, kind of telephone, and then in person. Interesting. Um, so in total, how many subjects you needed for this study? So was, we were powered to have, um, uh, we, we set the final sample size at 15,000. So we had 15,076 participants. Um, what was the outcome? Oh, for how long did you follow them and what was the outcome? Sure. So uh, they, they were, like I said, randomized. They were followed. We actually did a secondary randomization. They were randomized to three months of follow-up or six months of follow-up. So we, we have some interesting uh, stuff to look at there for that, that randomization. They were followed for 26 months, actually. A median follow-up was 26 months. So a relatively short uh, cardiovascular outcome um, duration. Um, and, and ultimately, at the uh, end of the day, there was no difference uh, in the comparative effectiveness. And, and our comparative effectiveness, um, or sorry, our effectiveness endpoint was all-cause mortality, hospitalization for MI, or hospitalization for stroke. But there was no difference between the study doses. What happened with respect to bleeding? I mean, there is a notion that 325 caused more bleeding than 81. We had um, we used a fairly strict definition of major bleeding, uh, something that mirrors gusto severe, um, because we were able to program it. So it was hospitalization for major bleeding that required a blood product transfusion, and actually the results were balanced. There was no difference in the occurrence um, of of major bleeding between the two doses, but it was very low low incidence. So the bottom line, um, there is no difference, right, between 31. So you can still take 325. It's the same, it's the same cost, right? Uh, actually, um, 325 is cheaper. Uh, one of our patient, uh, patients uh, voiced that recently. Um, un, un, you know, why that is is a little unclear. But, um, you know, Ron, there was one other thing. Patients in the 325 group did switch their dose more, um, and that's in the New England Journal paper. Um, um, and so there were clearly some uh, reasons for that. There was probably some tolerability issues. There were clearly patient and clinician preferences, but it led to a lower number of median days on the assigned aspirin dose. Turns out that if you took 325, when we did a pre-specified analysis, if you tolerated and took it, you actually had a lower occurrence of um, the primary effectiveness uh, endpoint um, than if you were on uh, 81 the entire time. So there's a lot more, there's a lot, a little bit more nuance to this that we're going to explore more. Ultimately, what we're telling patients, we want to make sure patients know 
that aspirin's still very important to take as uh, you know when you have uh, established cardiovascular disease. When you're on anyone and you're tolerating it well, you probably should stay on it because we didn't find a clear difference. But if you are on 325, you've tolerated it well for many years or for some time, that you may speak to your clinician about that because um, certainly there was this signal that you may do better if, if you're able to tolerate it. At 325. That's right. Um, one other interesting uh, question related to, this was done in North America. So, you know, there was a shift probably after uh, Plato to move from 325 to 81. And the Europeans were giving like 75, 100, not so much 81. And the US was giving primarily 325. And after that study, it was a huge conversion to 81. I wonder how many of your patients you had to change them from 81 to 325 or vice versa. Yeah, so we've we've looked at it. We haven't. We're we're doing more analyses now. But um, prior to the study, eighty five percent of patients were on the eighty one milligram dose, and so from that time period when we designed the study, 2013, 2014, to the time where majority of enrollment occurred, 2017, 2018, it really went from about 50 50 to about eighty five percent. Um, you know, heavily favoring 81 milligrams before the study, um, before they enrolled in the study. Yeah, so this was a huge shift from those before your study. I wonder what happens now with your study and what I hear behind the lines, actually, if you take 325, you may have some a little advantage on the 81. Uh, so if you're not in take Hagrolor, because this is definite no-go, um, looking at your own data and your next patient coming into the clinic, would you prescribe in 325 or 81? Yeah, I, I've been asked a similar question. Like if your dad came in, what would you do? And my dad has coronary, <laughs> my dad has coronary disease. So I actually talked to him about it. So I say, you know, dad, it's important for you to take aspirin. You have heart disease, number one. Um, but you know, if you're restarting aspirin, 81 seems like it's the right dose because it's not clearly, uh, 325 is not clearly better than 81. Yeah, if you haven't taken it before, the 325 and tolerated, there's a very high chance that you may switch. And we know that switching is actually not, not good. So we are, we are recommending to our patients that 81 milligrams is the kind of preferred dose. I read your paper in the New England. It's fascinating. And then congratulations for conducting that study. But usually when you send uh, your manuscript to the New England, you're getting some very tough reviewers. Mm -hmm. So can you share with us one of the kind of more challenging questions that you got uh, from one of the reviewers? Without this, you don't know who they are, but just, just a tough question that you had to struggle in terms of answering. They're all tough, Ron. As you know, they are um, very discerning and they're very specific about what they like uh, in terms of how you show the data and how you interpret it. And, and so I think um, certainly some of it was based, the toughest criticism or comment I thought that they had, which, which was again, very balanced and very fair was you started with a study question that you didn't have equipoise to randomize to. So the 81, most patients were on 81. 
And I think our point was, well, when we designed this study, we did really did think that there was equipoise, but there was this shift and we did an open label study where over five to six years, there was a change in the belief of the community, both patients and clinicians. So yeah, and that belief came again from the Plato study. Should we don't have the Plato study, I believe that no one would have changed because people are very conservative in changing their drugs. My, my personal issue with studies like that, uh, and again, I congratulate you on conducting studies over the web and uh, electronically. Uh, that's probably maybe the future, but still when it comes to adjudicate events, uh, it is a challenge and you are at the mercy of what was found in here and there in documentation, just almost impossible to adjudicate the events. And, and if it is important, then why we adjudicate the events in all the other traditional studies? If you tell me it's not important, then maybe we should stop adjudicating events in any study. Yeah, I, th I think it depends on uh, the approach. It obviously depends on um, the type of study. Um, if it's a regulated study, what the discussions have been with the regulatory agencies, especially the FDA, we saw some of that with Paradise MI. I'm sure you've probably interviewed Dr. Pfeffer. Um, for, for aspirin, you know, we, we're running a pragmatic study, so it, it didn't make a ton of sense to do a full CEC adjudicated program. And I helped run our CEC here at the DCRI. So, um, but in, in this case, what we did do for, for our study was we did a validation plan where we actually re did review about a third of the overall events. And there was actually a very high uh, positive predictive value for the um, uh, reported events to CEC adjudication. The, um, it didn't work as well for, um, for stroke events because of where the um, stroke diagnosis code was in the hospitalization. Um, but we're going we're gonna to publish on that and show uh, what we found. And what about bleeding events? Because there are because we linked it to the transfusion, it was very good. But uh, if we hadn't used the linkage to the transfusion, it would have been a scatter plot of, of very difficult uh, adjudicated results or non-adjudicated results. And be just a binary yes, no, and that's about it. Yes, yeah. but not to delineate the different types of living. Uh, I want to take more, more time from you, Dr. Jones. Uh, congratulations on a very well executed study. I think. It is a future that should remain with us, maybe one of the silver lining of COVID, although you started it prior to COVID. But we learned through COVID that uh, things like that uh, can continue to be evolved. And uh, we learned also on the main question about 81.325, that the best data that we have right now, and we were struggling with that for a while. So thank you for doing yeah. this study. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.